0: Please take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Jane and I are still so grateful for your gracious gift last year about this time that sent us to Edinburgh, Scotland and to London, England and uh... Dreen and I had the opportunity to spend, I believe it was four days in in London, exploring day after day, and we had the opportunity to walk along the Thames River and uh, take in some museums and visit the uh, London Bridge and the Tower of London, Westminster Abbey and Parliament. I remember on the second day, we took one of those, uh, I call them tourist trap buses, but it it was a lot of fun. We got one of these buses and we would ride all around the city and... um, Near the end of our trip, as we passed by the London Tower, there was a restaurant called The Hung, Drawn, and Quartered. And I was like, that's where we're going to lunch tomorrow. I mean, just to say that we've been to, and there it is, to The the Hung, Drawn, and Quartered. The Hung Drawn Quartered is uh, a little establishment that is just a stone's throw away from the Tower of London. If you have had the opportunity to see the movie Braveheart, one of the things that they do not depict very well is the location of the execution of William Wallace, which is at the London Tower. Uh, And the other thing they don't do very well is the method of execution. Most people don't realize he was hung, drawn, and quartered. Then his head was dipped in tar, placed on London Bridge, and we were right there where all of that happened. I want you to imagine with me that it's really an impossible scenario that as Dreen and I ate lunch that day at this establishment, the hung, drawn, and quartered, that there arose a bit of a ruckus on the street outside and all the customers turn their heads and the Queen of England shows up. And she walks into this restaurant, she looks left and she looks right, and then she makes a beeline to the table that Dreen and I are at. And she greets us and invites us to the Windsor Castle. And so we Walk onto the carriage with Queen Elizabeth, and we go to Windsor Castle, and we have tea with the Queen of England. By the way, this is all yeah, Maria. It's it's not true. <laughs> Maria's like going, "This is amazing. <laughs> it's fictional. I wish it were true." But there we are. We're we're having. Tea with, and I'd even compromise and have tea with the Queen of England any other time, forget it. But uh, so there we are drinking tea with the Queen of England, and then she has her entourage bring baskets of gifts just for Jerrine and I. I want to ask you, how would you respond to such a scenario? I know how I would respond. I would respond something like this I'm not worthy to receive any of these gifts in fact I'm not worthy to have you even invite me to the Windsor castle to have tea with such an important person scripture tells us that god has set his affection on the church the bible also reveals that that god finds great pleasure in giving special gifts to the church he has most noteworthy he has given us his son and the son has bestowed grace on each individual follower in his church you need to remember that the church is at the very center of god's redemptive purposes and last week we learned that god places a premium on a church which is unified and so paul urges the ephesians in Ephesians chapter four, he urges these believers to walk in a worthy manner. He urges them to walk in a manner of the, the calling that they have received that they are to display the characteristics of humility and gentleness and patience moreover, he, and he urges them to to bear with one another in love and then finally. He calls them to maintain unity, specifically unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I need to say that unity, as important as it is to God, it is not the only priority. That God has for the church. He also intends for this unified church to be growing daily in maturity. Mm-hmm. The title of the message this morning is Building a Maturing Church. Building a maturing church does not happen, as you might guess, by accident. It takes place over time, day after day after day. And remember that God, from start to finish, is at the very center of the building process. Would you stand with me as we read our passage together in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. And he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, it is always such a privilege to read the word of God together and to prepare our hearts to to understand what you would have us to know today. We recognize, as we learned last week, God, that, that you place a, a premium on a church who is unified. And that is, our, that is the heart uh, of, of us today at Christ Fellowship, that we would be striving to be a unified church. But we also know the importance that you place on a church who is growing in maturity. And so may we understand that lesson well today. May, may you enable us to receive this passage, to understand how you do it. What is behind this, this church who is growing in maturity? We ask that your spirit would be our teacher, that you would enable, would enable us to embrace, to accept the truth of the word of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The question this morning is, how is it that God builds a mature church family. In our passage before us, we discover rather quickly that God gives, and I want to have you pay close attention to that word, give, that God gives the church two very important things. In verses 7 and 8, we see by way of introduction, by way of overview, that God gives grace to the church. And then in verse 11, we see that he gives spiritual leadership to the church. And so our task over the next few weeks is to begin to explore and understand these gifts and discover how it is that God grows the church into a mature church. Verses 7 to 10, we see this. We call it the gift Of grace. And I want to take a few minutes to unwrap this gift of grace by having you look with me at four very important theological realities. Look with me at verse 7. Paul the Apostle says, But grace, and there's the word I want to have you focus on, was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I want you to first understand that grace is always undeserved. Grace is always undeserved. Now, the Greek word for grace, charis, is a word that means kindness or, or goodwill. Specifically, you see on the screen, it's God's free and unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only punishment or judgment. Another writer says it like this. He says, grace is God's free and unmerited Unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. He continues, it is the love of God shown to the unlovely. It is God reaching downward to people who are in rebellion against him. The Bible says this. It says that we have been justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The Bible goes on to say in Ephesians 2:5 that that we have been saved by grace. Now the grace that Paul refers to here in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 7 is not you need to understand is not saving grace. That's what we learned in Ephesians 2, that we have been saved by, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But when he says grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, we see that this is enabling grace. This is enabling grace. The grace that enables the people of God to perform the tasks that he has called us to do. And so like the Queen of England in this fictitional story, like the Queen who would offer a commoner like like me and my wife a place at her table and a basket filled with gifts, how much more does God offer this enabling grace to you and I who are so undeserving of it? The second thing I want you to see is this, that grace only makes sense in the context of sin. You see, if we were not sinners, it would be impossible for us to to comprehend the essence of grace. And that's why I say it makes sense only in the context of sin. It was Sam Storms who said that the first and possibly most fundamentally characteristic of divine grace is that it presupposes sin and guilt. He says grace has meaning only when men are seen as fallen, unworthy of salvation, and liable to eternal wrath. Grace does not contemplate sinners merely asking undeserving but as ill deserving. It is not simply that we do not deserve grace. We deserve hell. We deserve judgment. And so grace only makes sense in the context of sin. Verses 7 to 10 tell us this, that this enabling grace is given now by the ascended Christ. Paul makes uh, what you would initially think is a a rather complicated statement. It's what you might call a, a parenthetical statement that explains the background of the giver of these gracious gifts. In verse 8, he recites an Old Testament passage from Psalm chapter 68, verse 18, which reveal that it is Jesus Christ who gave gifts to people from the spoils of his victory. You see, Psalm chapter 68 is a, is a victory hymn. It is a victory hymn written by King David to celebrate God's conquest of the Jebusite city and the triumphant ascent of God. After a king, as you well know, in ancient days, after a king won such a victory... He would bring home the spoils and the enemy prisoners to parade before all the people, and all the people would raise their swords in the air. They would raise their shields in the air, and they would applaud the king for his victory. One commentator says that Christ Jesus died, rose, and ascended into heaven as the victorious king. With all authority, and he gave gifts to his people, displaying extravagant generosity. Look again with me at verse 7 and 8. I've asked you to pay close attention to the word given. Given in verse 7 and gave in verse 8. The text reads, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he did what? He gave gifts to men. And the reason I want to have you focus on this, what would appear to be rather obscure word, give or given, is that the word means to appoint. It means to cause. It means to ordain. Which is to say that grace is sovereignly given to the people of God. Enabling grace is A sovereign gift from the hand of God to the people of God. And it is specifically given, as this verse reveals, by the ascended Christ. The one who rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father says to Christ's fellowship, These are the gifts that I give graciously and sovereignly to you. The fourth thing I want you to see is very important, and that is that this enabling grace that we speak of in this passage is absolutely necessary for ministry. Have you had a day when you woke up, and maybe it was today, when you said to yourself, Self, I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can put my feet on the floor. Or perhaps you get your feet on the floor, and you make your way to the shower, and you have breakfast, and you you get in your car, and you turn on the ignition, and you look in the mirror and say, Self... I just don't think I can do it today. Or you make it to the office or you make it to school and you sit in your desk, either at school or your place of employment. And you just say, I don't know if I can go on or you're scheduled to meet with someone in a a discipling context or you're scheduled to have a meeting that is more confrontational or you're scheduled just to meet with a dear friend and, and you will listen to the struggles of your friend and you say to yourself, I don't know if I can do this today, I'm physically tired, I'm, I'm spiritually worn out, I'm emotionally drained, there is no gas in the tank. Would you do me a favor and raise your hand if you've ever experienced anything like that so I don't feel horrible, alone? Okay, we've all been through that. That's why grace is absolutely indispensable for life and ministry. We learn this, that apart from an enabling grace, we are absolutely absolutely ineffective apart from enabling grace we are spiritually destitute apart from enabling grace we are spiritually immobilized and apart from enabling grace you and i are powerless we are worthless we have nothing to offer jesus said it himself without me you can do nothing And so praise God for the gift that we read of in this passage, the gift of enabling grace, which in this context mobilizes our our hearts, our minds, our hands, our lips, and our feet to serve God and to serve his people and to minister in the body of Christ and in the community in which he has placed us. Now, one of the things that stands out in my mind in verses 7 to 10 is the extravagant giving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to give you two challenges as we consider the extravagant giving grace of Jesus. First, I want to encourage you to to stand in awe at our Savior who delights in lavishing you with His grace. I'll illustrate it like this. I grew up in Olympia and on the days when it was sunny, which was, I think, four days out of the year or something like that. I'm kidding. On the sunny days, I would always see Mount Rainier. And if you grew up in Whatcom County on the days that were sunny, like today, you would look up and Lord willing, you would see the beauty of Mount Baker. Here's what would happen, is we would have some out-of-town guests come and visit. And if they visited on a sunny day, we'd be driving down the road, and invariably our guests would say, what in the world is that? Let's say they're from Kansas. They've never seen anything like that before. You say, well, that's Mount Rainier. That is the most Beautiful mountain I've ever seen. Well, you and I, whether it's Mount Baker or Mount Rainier, we see it on a fairly regular basis, and we forget the beauty of the mountain. I think the same holds true with the grace of God, is on a daily basis, Jesus dispenses his people with what we're calling enabling grace, and we should be like that out-of-town visitor that says, that is amazing enabling grace i can't believe that jesus sovereignly dispenses this grace to me we should be blown away by it we should stand in awe at our savior who finds great delight in granting us this grace when you marvel at god's grace you see your worldview becomes absolutely revolutionized When you marvel at God's grace, your priorities are revolutionized. And when you marvel at God's grace, your life begins to be revolutionized. There's a second challenge I want to give you, and that is to make it your aim to model the extravagant giving of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when you you model... The extravagant giving of Jesus Christ. You you cast aside something that I am very, very concerned about these days. You cast aside this entitlement mentality. Are you familiar with this mentality? My school owes it to me. My boss owes it to me. My spouse owes it to me. Can I say something with the heart of a shepherd, but with a little passion attached to it you don't deserve anything yet god and his grace and his mercy dispenses this abling grace to the people of god and so when you model this extravagant giving of jesus you throw away this so-called entitlement mentality Additionally, when you model the extravagant giving of Jesus, your attention all of the sudden becomes riveted on their needs and their needs and their needs instead of me, myself, and I. And so I would challenge you this week, how can you share the extravagant giving of Jesus at school, at work? in your home, with friends, with your family members. Some of you know our neighbor, Paul, who lives right over here. And I had a a fascinating conversation with Paul who told me that he grew up, as some of you know, he grew up in, in Greece, and he told me that when he was a young man, he was interrogated by the communists. And the communists took him in, and they asked him some questions about his father, and he didn't know the answer. And they beat him up there in Delphi. And he told this story with, with, with emotion and passion. And as I was listening to Paul, I got to thinking, I've never had the chance to just sit down, and enjoy a cup of coffee with our neighbor. And I said to Paul, Paul, you're you're a Greek man. Do you like coffee? I knew what the answer would be. Oh, yes, I love coffee. I said, sometime very soon, would you stop by the church? And Paul loves to walk. And I said, I'd love to take a walk with you to Master's Blend and buy you a cup of espresso and just continue this discussion. And what led me to do that, and I should have done it years ago, is... I'm convicted that we begin to model the extravagant giving of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we listen to people, that we hear their stories, we hear the depth and the passion of their stories, and somehow, by God's grace and mercy, we ultimately have the chance to save to, to, to tell about the saving message of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's pray for our neighbor together. He's a, he's a really, really special guy. Well, God does not only give the church the gift of grace. He doesn't just leave us there. He also gives the church the gift of spiritual leadership. And that's our second point this morning. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. Paul says, he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. This is what I like to consider as the the range of gifts to the church. And you need to understand that Paul does not intend in Ephesians chapter 4 to prevent the, to present the full scope of the spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans 12 and 1 Peter 4, he will do that for us. But here he focuses on four kinds of spiritual leaders that are given to the church. And Paul uses the same word translated as gave in this passage as well. Notice, he says that he gave These four gifts, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. So once again, the term means to appoint or cause. That is, Jesus sovereignly grants these gifts to the church. Notice who he appoints. Number one, he appoints or gives the apostles. He gives the apostles. Number two, he gives the prophets. And I want to share those in advance by having you understand three very important responsibilities of both the apostles and the prophets. The first responsibility of these individuals is to lay the foundation of the church. Hold your finger in Ephesians 4 and go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Let's start in verse 18, rather. Ephesians 2, verse 18. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. The household of God. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, some of you are builders, and some of you may not consider yourself to be a builder, but you have some experience in building. Most of you know, I have this much experience in building. Zero, right? I can fill the gas in my car just barely beyond that i have i have no abilities in that area whatsoever but i do know this about building every solid structure requires something what's it called foundation. it's called a foundation and i want to ask spence how many times do you lay the foundation on a structure Once. one time You lay the foundation once, when the foundation is laid, what happens next? The building goes up, the building is constructed, the walls go up, the roof goes up, the guts are are put together in the house, you bring in all the subcontractors, and then the house, after a few months, is complete. What is important for us to understand here is that the first responsibility of the apostles and the prophets is to lay the foundation of the church. Hold that in your mind just for a moment. We'll come back to it. Number two, their responsibility is also to receive and declare revelation from the word of God or of the word of God rather. And then finally, the apostles and the prophets give confirmation of that word through signs and wonders and miracles. Now let's go back to what Spence said a moment ago. When you lay a foundation in a house or a structure, you do it one time. Once the foundation has been laid and is secure, you no longer have to build it again. Ephesians 2.20 says that the that the apostles... Look at it with me. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which is to say this ministry and the church has ceased. We no longer need apostles and prophets. They they, They have passed away with the closing of the canon. Apostles and prophets ceased with the completion of the canon. One writer says, Once the foundation was laid... The work of the apostles and the prophets was complete, but there 's more. We see that Jesus has given sovereignly to the church evangelists evangelist comes from a word that means this: a person who announces or proclaims the good news of jesus death, burial, and resurrection. And then there's a fourth category of gifting that, the, that Jesus gives the church, and Paul calls this, this category shepherds and teachers, or, if you will, pastors and teachers. I want to give a brief definition. And the definition would begin by looking at the Greek word for shepherd, which is translated as a pastor or a teacher or one who shepherds the flock. 1 Peter chapter 5. In fact, I'm going to read 1 Peter 5. Would you hold your finger in Ephesians 4 and turn to Acts chapter 20, verse 28. And we'll save a little bit of time. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. But first, 1 Peter 5, verse 2. Peter the apostle says, shepherd or pastor the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And then in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, which is an absolutely crucial passage. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care, to care For the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, Paul uses the same word, translated to care, as we see marked out in Ephesians chapter four, verse eleven, which is also translated as shepherd. The shepherd cares for or protects the flock. Next on your list or on the screen, you see the word overseer. The overseer, the episkopos, as it were, a church leader charged with caring or watching over the flock. Now, if you would indulge me, verse 28, once again in Acts 20, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you what? Overseers. Overseers to care for the church of God. The word is also found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul says, if anyone aspires to the office of episkopos, or overseer, he desires a noble task. Moreover, in Titus chapter 1, Paul says that an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. And there's a final category here, and it's the word elder. Presbyteros is the Greek term, and, and it's literally translated as elder. So once again, Paul says in 1 Peter 5.1, I exhort the elders among you. Titus 1.5, Paul says, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Acts chapter 14 verse 23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Here's the point. When we go back to Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11, and we learn about this fourth category of giftedness that is granted by the ascended Christ, the category of shepherds and teachers. Let's look at the next slide. We see this. We see that the shepherd... And the overseer and the elder are all the same thing. They are identical categories. They are synonymous. And so on a fairly regular basis, I tell the elders at Christ Fellowship, while they may not have the formal title of pastor, they may as well. Each elder at Christ Fellowship is a shepherd. Each elder at Christ Fellowship is an overseer. Each elder at Christ Fellowship is one of your pastors. They are one of your pastors. These are men called to be men of prayer who preach and teach the word of God. Now, I should tell you that God does not call every man in the local church to be an elder. I think we all know that. There are a group of men who God calls to be elders. But I do know this. God does call every man to take up the mantle of leadership. Richard Phillips calls this the masculine mandate. He says they are to be spiritual men placed in real-world, God-defined relationships as servants under God. To bear God's fruit by serving and by leading. I think most of you know that I like to be transparent. I like to be honest and sometimes to a fault. And as I wrote that last statement, the thought popped into my mind. And I thought to myself what about the women and i'm sure that some women here were thinking what about me and i think it's a it's a fair question to ask the response is this and i think and i trust that all the women will be not only comfortable with this response but it will cause a big smile to come on your face women in the body of Christ. And men, listen carefully to this. Women in the body of Christ long for men to be strong, bold, biblical, godly leaders. And all of the women said, "Do you hear that, guys? Women, they long for the men in their church family to be bold biblical, godly, courageous leaders. And so I want to conclude our time together this morning with a challenge to the men. I want to say to the men this morning that God is on the lookout for a certain kind of a man. He is looking for a certain man that is marked by three very important qualities. First, he's looking for men of character. God is looking for men of character. Men who are godly. Men who have integrity. Men who say what they mean and mean what they say. Men who will not cower in the face of controversy. Men who do not run away from a confrontation. God is on the lookout for men of character. But he's also looking for men of conviction. He's looking for men of conviction. There is a well-known theology professor and theologian by the name of B.B. Warfield. B.B. Warfield was a man who fell in love with a, with a young girl, and they, they got engaged, and they were married. They went to Europe, and on their honeymoon, something happens. Not anyone really has an explanation for it. Some think it was a lightning strike. Others, they don't really know. But something happened to his bride on their honeymoon that utterly incapacitated her. And so for the rest of his life, he took care of his wife. Very rarely would he leave the campus of Princeton Seminary because he wanted to be close to his wife. He could have had many outside speaking engagements and and writing engagements and other meetings around the world, but B.B. Warfield decided to stay as close to his wife As humanly possible. He wanted to maintain his marriage vows and honor his wife and to love her as Christ loves the church. This is a man who understands what it is to be a man of conviction. And this is what B.B. Warfield said. He said, convictions are the root on which the tree of vital Christianity grows... No convictions, no Christianity. Scant convictions, hunger-bitten Christianity. Profound convictions, solid and substantial religion. Warfield said, Let no one fancy that it can be any otherwise. Ignorance is not the mother of religion, but irreligion. The knowledge of God is eternal life, and to know God means that we know Him aright. B.B. Warfield is a man who is a man of conviction. And I want to encourage the men at Christ Fellowship to be just that kind of a man. Finally, God is looking for men of competency, men who grow in the skill set that they have been given, men who grow in their understanding of the Word of God, men who can teach and preach and counsel and serve and lead. I read this several years ago. It says, Give me a man... Give me a man of God whose faith is master of his mind, and I will right all wrongs and bless the name of all mankind. Give me a man of God, one man whose tongue is touched with heaven's fire, and he will flame the darkest hearts with high resolve and clean desire. Give me a man of God, one man, one mighty prophet of the Lord, and I will give you peace on earth, bought with a prayer and not a sword." Give me a man of God, one man true to the vision he sees, and I will build your broken shrines and bring the nations to their knees. This morning, the thing I want you to see above all is that God blesses the church with grace and spiritual leadership for this purpose, so that the church might be growing in maturity. Now, we have seen the importance of a church who is unified. We've seen the importance of a church who is unified in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I want to bump ahead to a couple of slides and and have you look at something with me. Let's go ahead. Two slides. And this is the thought that struck me. One more. The thought that struck me was this. If you like football, and even if you don't like football, you know that one of the things that happens at the beginning of every football game is that three or four or five of the players, usually captains on the team, will come to the center of the field for the coin flip. And generally you will see grown men or high school boys holding hands. It's kind of a weird deal, isn't it? It's the only time you're ever going to see those guys holding hands. But as they march out onto the field with with their brothers with their comrades, holding hands, this is a sign of unity. And this thought struck me this week as I was considering the importance of the unity of Christ, or the unity of the body of Christ, rather, that we need to be unified at Christ Fellowship. It it, it is all important. But the next thought struck me was probably even more important. As important as unity is to a church family... Unity does not always result in maturity. It does not always result in maturity. We can be unified but remain immature. But unity is a prerequisite for Christ's fellowship to be growing in maturity as a church family. And so we commit ourselves to standing in unity. And then we commit ourselves to be growing in maturity. So God blesses the church with with two things here. He blesses the church with grace and spiritual leadership so that she might be growing in maturity day after day after day. My challenge is we close. What is it that, that you individually need to be doing this week so that you'll be growing in maturity? And what is the role of your Pastors and your teachers, those that God has, has gifted your church with to help facilitate what it means to be growing in maturity. Next week, we will continue in part two of this study as we look specifically at verse 12. And we will look at a brief job description of pastors, elders, and overseers, all the same office. And we will ask, what are the elders of the church Called upon to do in the local church family. And once we have a clear understanding of what that job description entails, then we will see what it looks like to move forward as a church family that we would be growing in maturity. Because that's exactly what God is calling us to be. God does not only want us to be unified, He's calling us to be a mature church family. And as one of your pastors, you know what I'm seeing? It's happening. It's happening. And a lot has been happening in recent days where... The Holy Spirit has been doing mighty things here in our church family, and we're going to see that afterwards in the town forum when we get together in this town hall session. I want to invite 100% of you to come. Even if you did not bring anything to eat or bring a lunch, come on over. We'll have extra for you, and we're looking forward to seeing what God is doing here at Christ Fellowship. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for all that you're doing at Christ Fellowship. We look forward to seeing more of what's happening in the town hall session after this service. God, for now, thank you so much for for granting us gifts through your Son. We thank you for the gift of enabling grace. We thank you for these spiritual leadership gifts that you appoint in local churches so that the church family might grow in maturity. And now, God, one of the, the, the signs of a growing church is that we are active in the administration of the ordinances. God, and the ordinance that we observe today is the Lord's Supper. We recognize, God, that uh, the bread is a symbol of your Son's body, and the, the cup is a symbol of the blood of your Son that was shed for your people on Calvary's cross. And so, Lord, help us now as we partake of these elements to to take this seriously, to remember the Lord Jesus Christ, to remember his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension, and to remember that he now is seated at the right hand of the Father, where he rules and reigns for all eternity. Thank you for this special time. May you grow us deeply in the soil of your grace, that we might be a mature people of God. In Jesus' name, amen.